Greetings, and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How are you this week? Well, I'm not as witty as Nev Fountain, I guess, because I cannot think of my usual weekly uh, comment on what happened in this story. <laughs> oh, that's fair enough. Well, saying that, though... There are not many people who are as witty as Neff Fountain, and we are actually dealing with one of his better plays this week. That means we are dealing with the Kingmaker. So we are back with Fifth Doctor, Aramem, and Perry. Kev, do you want to give us a summary? Sure. The Kingmaker has, as you mentioned, the Fifth Doctor, Aramem, and Perry, arriving in London, 1597, as the Doctor attempts to finish his contract on writing a new Doctor Who Discovers book. And so he goes back to the time after a brief conversation with Shakespeare does not go well. He goes back to the time of Richard III to find out what happened to the princes in the tower. This involves abandoning Perry and Aramem due to a TARDIS malfunction two years before the Doctor arrives. And cross-cutting between multiple timelines as the Doctor confronts Richard as Perry and Aramem make their way through the London of 1483. And as the sort of mystery of what the life of Richard III is like unfolds, we are introduced to a character who we're all reasonably sure is the master until it turns out to William Shakespeare himself, who has hijacked the TARDIS and several bits of future weaponry, as well as a resolution to this mystery where Richard III's nephews were actually nieces, who he passed off. There were, he never had to kill anyone, and meanwhile... He takes Shakespeare's place as Shakespeare takes his place. And there's a lot of other little details as well. But that is, I guess, the best I can do short summary of it. That's probably about as good as you can possibly get. One of the things about The Kingmaker is that it is an incredibly kind of twisty and turny tale. And it's not one that's particularly easy to summarize. How did you find this one? Did you like it? Oh, yeah. This is my second time listening to it. And long enough that I'd forgotten a lot of the great jokes in it. It's just a very fun story. It's... Like I said, very twisty and turny, and each twist is like very engaging. It's a great mystery. It's definitely Fountain as his wittiest. There's so many good jokes in this story, and on top of that, it's a really good like character study of this version of Richard III as a very sympathetic character. Yeah, unusually sympathetic. Is he's not a character that tends to get any kind of sympathy and i mean obviously we have to deal with the kind of whole shakespearean thing and whether we want to regard that as elizabethan propaganda or whether we want to regard it as something else that well that's always going to be an open question but it's still very unusual to have a play which is prepared to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt in that way and the fact of course that it comes from neff fountain well he always tends towards the sort of comic end of the spectrum but one of the nice things about this play and it is such a relief to be able to say this but it's a big finish comedy that's funny and that is such a rare thing so it's such a pleasure to be able to listen to this and actually enjoy that kind of you know witty camaraderie the the banter is very good here there's a lot of very interesting characters we have a very large number of, of in-jokes and some of them are not 100% of them but I'm going to go ahead and say about 95% of them probably do and and that's just such a rare thing it's it's so nice to be able to talk about a big Finnish comedy which is genuinely funny yeah he really is a good asset to the company and I feel like they he maybe only does one or two stories a year if that looking at his resume now. And I think that's a sort of asset to him that he's not being forced to pump out these, like, say, a Fitton or a Dorney or what have you. It really does mean he can sort of concentrate, like, his joke-telling <laughs> into sort of one story and not, like, spread himself thin. And it really, sh it really shows that this is, like, his second script for Big Finish. And quite possibly I'd need to maybe date the, some of his other mediums stuff but basically this is definitely an early Doctor Who story no matter how you look at it for him and you can tell that these are things that he's wanted to joke about for a long time I mean the shoehorning in of the Doctor Who discovers sort of meta-ness to it that's like a joke you could easily tell he teen Nev has had in his mind for years and loves to get a chance to sort of pull it out he has lots of commentary on the roles of companions in the story and what they do a lot of commentary on how Doctor Who stories are usually dialogue structured and twisting that around. And then also uh, not just comedic thoughts, but serious thoughts about what the Doctor does as he travels through time and tries to 
preserve history in his way, it's very sort of insightful that can really only come from like a fan who's finally getting the chance to sort of talk about these things. I think the enthusiasm that sort of suffuses this play is one of the most kind of pleasurable things about it. We talked about uh, Neff Fountain when we were discussing The Lady in the Lake a few weeks ago, the, the River Song story. And it is another story which kind of revels in its kind of twistiness and its turniness and its kind of unexpected um, takes on, on what's going on. And one of the nice things about this particular play, I think, and something which is, is to an extent sort of replicated in, in the River Song story, is it does have a lot of that kind of Shakespearean element. There's a lot of Shakespearean reversals. There's a lot of coincidence. There's a lot of things which kind of make up a lot of those kind of Renaissance plays. Uh, but Nefountain is able to land it here in a way that makes it seem like it's paying tribute to the era that these two time zones are kind of set in. So both, obviously, the 16th century of, of Shakespeare and the earlier time of Richard III. Um, and it's able to sort of work with them to make it feel like a kind of coherent historical narrative, if that's not too sort of pretentious a way of putting it. And I really love that about this play. There, there is, for all the twists and turns in it, they're, they're presented as sci-fi twists and, and sort of familiar plays on, on kind of the Doctor's usual sort of modus operandi. But I really like the fact that it very likely kind of echoes the way that certain Shakespearean plays are echoed, not just Richard III, which obviously is the, the most direct touchstone here. Um, but we get references to the, the comedies as well. And, and, you know, some offhanded lines about how uh, I don't do jokes. Oh, well, then you're the perfect man to write a Shakespearean comedy. You know, those are, those, are, those are nice little throwaways. And they're throwaways from somebody who clearly has such love and understanding of the Shakespearean part of, of, of what he's trying to do whilst at the same time having a really solid grasp on the historical elements. And I think the, the sort of bringing those three things together, so the, the Shakespeare, the history, and, and the sort of genuinely funny humour, uh, that's just what makes this play fire on absolutely all cylinders. Oh, yeah, like you said, enthusiasm is the key word here. It's so clear that there's such love for all of those elements that makes this work, that, that all the care put into this story, all the thoughtfulness of sort of, and also just to have all of these plot points sort of come together to a head. I mean, even the throwaway jokes in the beginning, like the publisher assassin robot thing, uh, winds up being in integral to the climax because there's no bit of the story left unused. It's very sort of cohesive, very whole. And like a lot like late in the lake before, that can only really come with like a lot of planning and thought and care put into the story. Well, absolutely. And one of the sort of key elements with that planning is if you're going to do something in these kind of multiple time zones, they really do need to sort of line up. And I think the meticulousness of the way that the, the sort of plot mechanics work is just one of those things which is, it, it's such a, it sounds like such a simple thing to do, but it's really, really complicated. And, and one of the things that Nev Fountain as we say, right up until including his most recent River Song adventure, is he, he can do that kind of thing and yet has the ability to make it look so effortless. And that's that's such a, a difficult thing to do, especially when you're dealing with kind of like, oh, the, the, the girls are actually boys or the boys are actually girls and then this king is up a tree and the other one is now Shakespeare. So it would be it would take one tiny little thread to be pulled on for that whole thing to come sort of catastrophically collapsing down. But but um, Neff Fountain is able to walk that line so smoothly. And it's just, it's such a pleasure to see somebody able to do something so well and make it look just so effortless. I want to get into one of the specifically, one of those things to make seem so effortless while is actually so clever in the writing is how he sort of separates the doctor with his companions in the story. I love the twist that Perry and Aramam wind up two years before the doctor is supposed to be there. And I mean, I mean, it is like a pretty cute little joke when they say they're going to be there very early. <laughs> but it's a great mystery, too, because you have something unfolding. Like, t the doctor is getting answers as we're sort of cross-cutting to the back. And that could be something very hard to keep track of. I would talk about this in late in like two, I'm realizing now, that cutting between multiple timelines and not spoiling one is very involves such a control of like the flow of information that fountain handles really well and you're never lost you're never confused about when this is 
because Paranormal is a very linear track that just happens to be offset from the Doctors, and then they eventually collide. And, I mean, just little things with, like, the letters being sent back and forth between uh, the Companions, the Fifth Doctor, and the Ninth Doctor in a little uh, illusion, which I thought was really clever. Uh, yeah, that, that's such a good scene to kick things off with that time displacement. Well, it's very sweet. And I like the fact that rather than come up with some kind of baffle gab explanation for it, they just say, oh, yeah, the doctor was drunk. And that's what happened. That's why the TARDIS ended up drifting back a couple of years in, in time. And, you know, if there's any doctor who can do sort of bashful forgiveness, you know, it's it's Peter Davison's doctor. And he does such a great job of, of landing that. And, you know, again, of all the doctors, it's, he's definitely one who you can easily imagine. Yeah, he's not the one that can handle his drink. Like, if that had been John Pertwee's doctor, it would have been a very different outcome to this story. But but Peter Davison's, yeah, for sure, he would be the one who just had one too many ales or one too many ginger pops and just, just realized that, yeah, oh, he had no idea what was going on. So that's that's kind of cute, but it's sort of cute in a way that, that works. It feels sort of character consistent. It doesn't undermine the way that the fifth Doctor is portrayed. And, of course, Peter Davison is great at playing that bashfulness. That's that's kind of what he's known for. So I, I just really appreciate the fact that they can take something like that, have such a small little detail that the Doctor just got drunk with Shakespeare, and that's kind of what triggers this whole uh, sort of sequence of events and and it's just it's just lovely it, it it should be or it could be i should say such a not a cliche but it, it it just it could be lazy and it's not it's handled with exactly the right sort of delicate touch and and that's just something to admire oh yeah i love the setup to this story i love like, you're right it is just very sort of simple setups to complicated things but the fact that it's set up so simply is sort of what keeps it all able to keep track of if there was a baffle gab explanation that would require its own exposition and this is already a very long story uh well over two hours each of the four episodes over a half hour per piece and yet long explanations are already coming thick and fast in regards to like, the history and the character motivations so you really got to keep the sort of sci-fi elements to as simple as possible and what is more simple is oh the tardis is drunk and malfunctioning as it is wont to do and I mean, that does give more room for like all this great sort of history and character study, like I mentioned, that we get through this story. Um, yeah, and I just I want to talk more about how that mystery is developed, though, between the mystery of like how these companions sort of fared in the two years they're sort of separated from the Doctor. Like again, I really love the cross cutting. Like it's very present, especially in Episode Two, where you have the Doctor sort of in the cell. He's in that cell for, like two and three almost completely right it's very yeah 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 but it doesn't feel inert because he is sort of has these conversations with uh richard eventually but before then uh, one of the lords i'm i'm blanking on the name i'm sorry but and it, it works great because it's the doctor sort of figuring things out and staying on his feet in a sense as we sort of cut to even the more active sort of storyline of paranarium edit of Perry and Aramem making their way through 1914-83. Well, yeah, and it's a lovely touch when you have the Doctor being able to kind of figure those things out because it should, again, it should just be him sitting in a cell giving us the exposition that we need in order to understand what's going on. But the intercutting helps to break it up, obviously. That stops it just becoming sort of repetitious or kind of, here comes the explanation. But there's just, it's it's handled with a deftness. And I think if I had to pick a word to describe this play, I think that word would be deft. Um, but all that stuff with the Doctor and the Tower is, is so well handled. And all the conversations with Richard that the Doctor has are sort of portrayed as... I don't want to do that kind of thing like sort of predators circling each other, but it is also kind of that as well. These are both extremely intelligent men who are being put, you know, in direct conflict with each other. And the way that both of them are able to work out how the other one 
is going to behave, how they're going to respond, how they're going to react to something is kind of key to this interaction. I'm really fascinated by the way that the fifth doctor and Richard interact and the way that the doctor is like, particularly that kind of, we, we come, it's a part three, we play up to the cliffhanger where, where Richard is kind of goading the doctor to kind of sentence his own companions to death, thinking that it's the, the princess in the tower um, and he's actually restoring the history. And yet, that's not where the episode ends. The Doctor figures it out and actually we get a completely separate cliffhanger. That's so great because it's really, in, in, in a play which takes so much time to sort of play with continuity, to play with in-jokes and sort of, you know, it's such a love letter from a fan. The idea that we're playing up to this kind of big cliffhanger where the Doctor sentences his own companions to death, that's exactly where, as fans, our expectations are are just going to go. You can't help it. And yet that's completely undercut. It's completely subverted. And that's really smart writing. It's not just smart writing in terms of the way that it uses the audience, but it's smart writing in the way that it uses the characters as well. And, and yeah, these two incredibly intelligent man have men have these cat and mouse moments together that's just one but there's several sort of throughout the play and and it's just it's such a, a solid grasp of character and such a solid grasp of situations but but the way that it can cut in to audience audience expectations is what really elevates it to something special i loved that little moment uh like you said i was sort of played the same way even the second time through sort of assuming that would be the cliffhanger, and instead the rug is pulled under uh, us twice as we get a completely different cliffhanger. And I think that's another great way of playing with audience expectations is this character of Mr. Satan, which is such an... It's like this is a pretty great master story where the twist is the person who obviously is the master isn't. That's sort of a card that very hard to play, but <laughs> I think Nev Fountain plays it well where it's almost like an inverse of that usual master air quotes twist. And yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Michael Fenton Stevens does a great master-esque kind of character and then is also a great William Shakespeare. And that twist at the end of episode three, which caught me off guard for the second time, is so much fun. Like, I knew it wasn't the master. I remembered that much, but I couldn't remember exactly who the character was really. And the story is really good at not really giving you many clues, but it still makes so much narrative sense once you get to that point. Oh, it definitely does. And one of the things, I also couldn't remember who the character was, even though I knew it wasn't the master. But there was a bit in the back of my mind that was saying, it kind of could be the monk. And and especially because Michael Fenton Stevens's performance, he does kind of sound like Rufus Hound as well. And, and there was just like, so it's like, it's almost kind of playing it forward as well, which seems very appropriate for a show based on time travel. But it's just such a, it's such a, a lovely thing. I love uh, Michael Fenton Stevens. I've, I've been a fan of him for probably 20 or 30 years now. I used to do a, a, well, a radio show and then a TV show um, called Radioactive and then KYTV. And he's, he's such a, he's done Hitchhikers as well. He's, he's done a whole bunch of stuff. But he's such a great comic actor. He's somebody that I have so much kind of admiration for and he's yeah i completely agree he he lands mr satan so well in this and yeah then to kind of twist that round would be shakespeare too it's just such a a lovely performance i could just listen to him doing that role forever yeah there is it's just a lot of fun to have a william shakespeare characterized like this and i mean most especially cathartic for you to have this in contrast to the shakespeare code oh <laughs> yes other things yes <laughs> well and you and you as well i know you're not the biggest fan yeah of yeah episode. I mean, I'm I'm very much neutral bordering on whatever to it. I'm not definitely. I think you have a little bit more animosity than I do. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, it is so much fun to sort of see this such like heretical uh, interpretation of the man. And as much as I appreciate Shakespeare, I love his work a lot. It is just sort of fun to see it play with history in this very perverse way. To have Shakespeare with a laser gun running around this time period and then eventually dying in Richard III's place. That is such a bizarre thing and very unusual for Doctor Who, which is so much about almost preserving... Like, Doctor Who has never been concerned with its own continuity. Never. (laughs) Never (laughs) in its entire history, unless it's convenient or somewhat otherwise impactful for it to worry about it. Like, for example, a crossover or something. But even by that standard, this story goes out of its way to do something that it 
I also want to say Fountain knows that some other writer is going to overwrite and just disregard completely, which, of course, they do. No other story, even talking about Shakespeare, is going to talk about these events. But that's sort of the fun of it. And that, I mean, that's why Doctor Who is such a solid sci-fi franchise, in my opinion, just to get real uh, zoomed out with all of this, is because you can't have stories like this that just completely screw with the nature of this fictional universe itself. But it just feels fine because it's just another adventure with the Doctor that we can choose to overlook or not if another writer wants to. Well, I mean, talking about overwriting stories, I mean, obviously, yes, nobody else is going to pick up on this and, and one wouldn't expect the Shakespeare Code to do that on TV. But in a way, this play is also doing as well because how you square this away with Time of the Daleks when the Daleks want to preserve Shakespeare for themselves? I mean, we covered this story. But yeah, good luck. I really would love to lo read an explanation of how this story in Time of the Daleks managed to line up because that would be quite the read. But uh, yeah, it's it's fine. It's happy to play around with history. It's happy to play around with all these kind of concepts and ideas. And it's just such, yeah, it just revels in it so much that there's the, that, that's, yeah, that sense of enthusiasm, that sense of a joy in being able to explore these concepts. Because in a way, the a lot of the Doctor Who references are things that we are now very familiar with. Um, although at the time, certainly that wasn't very common. But it's able to play with history and play with, um, you know, narrative in the same way. And I'm kind of interested in a way as well, because um, did you get, like, taught about Richard III at school? Obviously, I come from Scotland, you come from America. Um, I have no idea how kind of history is really sort of taught in, in sort of American schools. Were you? Did you ever find out about any of this? And if not, did it sort of... Was it clear from listening to this play what was going on? At least from my experience, the only Richard III we're taught is the Shakespeare play. <laughs> there, okay. Yeah, yeah, like British history is very much skimmed over in American schools, as, you know, it probably should be. <laughs> I mean, no offense, but... Oh, I, I'm not passing judgment. I'm just curious. Yeah, it... Yeah, I... There's not much gone into beyond, oh, the Renaissance, that was great, and the Dark Ages, that was not so great. But yeah, in terms of, like specific royal figures beyond, I don't know, Elizabeth I and Victoria, no, did not learn much about them at all. But yeah, Richard uh, III, I only know from seeing a production of Richard III once and this play, pretty much. And it does a really good job of keeping it all straight, which is very impressive given how steeped it is in the play. I was kind of hoping I'd have a chance to read the play again before recording this. I did not. But it's fine because I think the story does such a good job of making it clear, I mean, from episode one, and this is probably where the story needs to be over two hours long, there's just lots of exposition about the princess in the tower, and who uh, Richard III had executed, like, Duke of Clarence, etc., etc. And I think it does a good job of making the exposition not just dumped on you, or a bore. It's definitely spaced out well, and it's definitely interspersed with, like, character beats and jokes and other bits of dialogue flourishes. But at the same time, it's doing a lot of essential work in keeping all these plot points straight, which it needs to be. And I'm very happy with that. Oh, no, that's really cool. That's that's very interesting to me because I, I had to do some history at, at school, which covered uh, the royal families. And I, I said before in this podcast, I, I studied history at university, but I am profoundly uninterested in kind of um, royalty and, and sort of royal lineage and, and all that kind of stuff. So this is this is very much uh, not my period, um, you know, and that's great that if uh, you're able to kind of follow what's going on and it's sort of clear from sort of context and, and the way that this is written, um, that it's able to communicate that information to somebody who's not sort of familiar with it or who's not been sort of taught it in, in school or who isn't just sort of automatically familiar with it. That is another kind of tribute to Nev Fountain's writing, the fact that he's able to get all that information across. Because, yeah, there is a lot of um, exposition, especially early on. And if I... I like, I get that this is a, a very long play, and if I have a criticism of it, I do think, like, the fourth episode maybe rambles about more than it necessarily needs to. I think it gets slightly carried away with itself. But for the most part, it does really justify its runtime. And that kind of the enthusiasm, the humor, the energy um, keeps it all going. But the fact that it's able to communicate a lot about Richard, and, you know, comparatively 
sympathetic way is is yeah it's just another achievement uh, of Neff Fountains. Let's talk about Richard. Let's get really into that character because he's a fascinating person. Uh, I love Stephen Beckett's bone-dry delivery of all of his lines. It's great comedic material, and it also really keeps you on the toes of, like, how is this character going to fall? Who is he actually a murderer or not? Well, absolutely. And I think that... uh, Firstly, I want to say that I'm very sad that this is uh, Stephen Beckett's only appearance in Big Finish because he really is terrific here. I I know him um, from an endless... um, well, it's it's finished now, so it's not technically endless. It has, in fact, ended. But um, sort of cop show called The Bill in Britain, which ran for about a quarter of a century or something, just forever. Um, but and he was in that for a few years. And this is the only other thing I've I think I've ever sort of seen or heard him in. And he's great here. He's so fantastic. And that kind of bone dry delivery is just so perfect for the way that he he delivers this character. Like even the the kind of the constant jokes about his kind of physical deformities or whatever, which in and of themselves are not necessarily historically confirmed. There's still much speculation about how much of that is is just kind of you know, Victor, uh, sorry, Elizabethan propaganda to, to to sort of try and put down the the uh, Plantagenets. But it's just one of those things that it's it's such a an unexpected way of having the character behave. You don't expect. A royal, like whenever we bump into like Elizabeth or Victoria or any of those characters, they do not behave like this. Like even even um, Elizabeth, um, when she meets the Tenth Doctor in Day of the Doctor, like she's sort of spunky and sparky and she's got a bit of attitude and whatever, and that's that's great. But it's still, it's not like this. It's not that kind of sort of dry humor and weariness and kind of intelligence and and real cynicism as well there's a lot of cynicism about um richard and all these different aspects help to give so much depth to the character and i think that's really why it works i love stephen beckett's performance but i think the writing gives him so much scope to kind of work in these different facets of richard and it's it feels like a real genuine rounded character To pull back a bit, this is a story that feels like very much about how things aren't what they seem on the surface. Like we're talking about the whole Shakespeare, Mr. Satan sort of thing, and even sort of the like the sort of production tricks playing on in fan expectations. It's a very much story about keeping on your toes. I think Richard the Third is sort of the best example of that, because like I was saying, that very dry delivery, that very like almost brutish sort of uh, delivery, and the lines he's given, and just the way he sort of toys with the doctor and into killing his companions, maybe it all paints him as like a not nice guy, but at the same time he insists he's not a murderer and he's right. (laughs) And that is something that is such a gray territory that never really squares with. Whereas it is this very unpleasant person, this very viscerally unpleasant person, but still in the eyes of the script, he's a mostly good person. And I think that's such a fascinating contrast that the story is really playing hard into and to sort of toying with his expectation of expecting him to be a much more villainous figure in almost a classic like historical sense where you have these sort of, you know, and like say like a first doctor or otherwise historical story, you have these uh, real life figures who are just tweaked to be a little more monstrous and crazy just to give a threat to the doctor and their companions. Richard III almost plays into that archetype, but doesn't and instead it's a very introspective uh idea into what the doctor does and how the doctor sees the figures he's interacting with well absolutely and i think one of the big successes is that the character works not only when he's facing off against the doctor but sort of across every character that richard iii meets he's able to kind of dominate the scenes that he's in but not completely control the scenes he's in and that's a very hard balance to strike like one that we haven't even started talking about sort of perry and aramem yet and i just adore them in this story mm-hmm. they are fantastic but the way that um they react to richard the way that mr satan reacts to him the way the doctor reacts to him and um all these sort of different facets give that character dimension not just in terms of the way that he's written but in the way that other characters um, react to him. And I, I think Clary is one of the key sort of aspects of that as well. And uh, firstly, again, I love Arthur Smith. Arthur Smith is an 
absolute god in my eyes. Uh, another comedian I've known for, I don't know, donkey's years. But he's just so great at that and that kind of very laconic sort of delivery that Clary has. But the way that Richard has kind of been defending him and keeping him safe and, um, you know, okay, eventually he doesn't make it out of the story alive, but he, Richard, dedicated so much of his time to try and keep sort of Clary safe. And, and that speaks so much about the character without the necessity to have that kind of exposition or, or that kind of, you know, endless explanations of, of, of what his motives are. It's perfectly clear. It's revealed with the, the, the sort of recurring catchphrase about blood being thicker than water. And then when we actually get to discover who Clary really is, we actually get to understand that there's real weight behind Rich's words. He's not just mouthing them as a form of self-justification. It's not about simply because he's king or, or not king, but in a position of power. You know, all these different aspects sort of play into Richard and it makes him a genuinely complex character and a genuinely complex character in a comedy that is so much more sophisticated a character than we get in a lot of the dramas that we listen to. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. I really want to talk about Clary, but before we move on to that, there's one more even added layer of complexity to Richard that I really want to talk about because I think it's so clever. Uh, this backstory speech he gives about people coming to gawk at him through out history it said that time travelers would consistently pester him even as a boy about his monstrous actions in the future and i think that's such a good layer to the character this idea of him being destined to be a monster and remembered as a monster no matter what he does and all this sort of like tragic idea behind it where like there wasn't even nephews for him to kill there were nieces that he had to protect and then protecting them it winds up looking like he killed them. That is such a good uh, twist. That's such a good bit of irony to the character as well. But then also just sort of the fun of it, of having time travelers come to him and then him accidentally learning about the Doctor and learning about time travel through that way. is That's such, such a very sort of clever thing to put in a story. Oh, I absolutely love it. And again, I think it's one of the things that helps to demonstrate Richard's intelligence. He could have been one of those people who would have you know, passed off these time travelers as demons or wizards or witches, you know, very superstitious time, it's the dark ages, you know, th there's any number of ways that that character could have reacted to these circumstances. But no, what he does is he has a clear-eyed analysis of what it is that's happened to him, and he's learned from it. And that's such a great way of being able to demonstrate how smart this character is without having to just have it explained at us. One of the nice things about this play, I think, is the fact that the Doctor never tells us how clever or how intelligent Richard is. It's simply something which is presented as self-evident. We get a lot of talk about Shakespeare because of course we do. He's like the greatest playwright of all time and he's one of the, you know, the classic wordsmiths and blah, blah, blah. That's fine. We've heard all that stuff before and we will definitely be hearing it again. But we don't get that said about Richard. And yet, in many ways, Richard is shown to be the much smarter man here. He's able to analyze the stuff that's in front of him. He's able to draw the correct conclusions from it. In the end, he's also the one who's able to sort of, you know, carry on writing the plays when he's eventually left in the 16th century. You know, this is an incredibly intelligent man. And all of his intelligence is something that is simply presented rather than explained. And I adore that about this character. Yeah, I think it really speaks to the empathy in The Fountain has, just to be able to write a character who does have such hidden depths that are very slowly peeled away and revealed, so you never quite know where to sit with him. But in the end, you have this great story about a person who just seems so scary on the surface, but is actually just... And it like, is, but never is quite softened. It's never quite like a Boo Radley situation where, oh, he was just a sweetheart underneath. No, he still tortures people. And I think that's what <laughs> makes it so still fascinating is that he's not a nice person at any point, but he's still never as monstrous as history makes him out to be. And that's such a fascinating story. Well, yeah, and he's completely unapologetic about that side of himself as well, you know. He's, he views these things as necessity. And I think that um, there's a key line in the play, but it's not one which is given to Richard. It's one that's given to Aramem. And she says, I'm sick of seeing this world through your eyes when they're discussing death and the possibility of death. And I think that's sort of the key element. I think that's the key line that sort of unlocks the whole play. It's all presented as, as 
it would be as is, but it's not something that we get to pass judgment on from a period of sort of 600 years in the future. It's something that we have to look at and analyze from the perspective of the characters in that time. And that's exactly what Richard sort of exemplifies. He is that character that we can have understanding of him. We can be sympathetic towards the fact that he wants to save his nieces and he has been burdened with this kind of royal line of succession that he is expected to protect. But at the same time, he is somebody who um, has a very dry sense of humor and that we can appreciate. He's somebody who will casually use torture without having a second thought about it. He's somebody who will exploit Perry and Araman for his own good, uh, regardless of what their requirements are and yeah again it's just such a, a sort of fascinatingly complex character but yeah i think that's sort of the key line in it we we cannot judge the actions of the characters in the 14th and 16th century sorry 15th and 16th centuries through our own eyes we have to be able to see it from their perspective and that's for me that's really the key of the play yeah and you brought up aramem saying that line I, let's talk about parent aramem now they're such a delight in this story this is definitely up there with the best both characters have been written and i think a lot of it is because uh nev really leans into i think nev i can't really call him fountain either <laughs> Your friend nev. yeah 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 but uh yeah the way he leans into sort of aaron being out of the time out of place with this and sort of reckoning with that in a way not a lot of other writers do or at least not with this level of depth and sort of intelligence behind it and then as well as taking Perry, a character who was, to put it bluntly, underwritten on television, and like other big writers have sort of found a way to stake out the character uh, before and since, but I really do think Nev Fountain understands like something that was key to the character on TV that can translate well, and that is the sort of squeamishness and sort of uh, weariness with the world around here and all the mayhem happening around here that works really well especially counterpoint to Aramem. I think this might be my favorite Aramem play. Um, I'm, I'm really hesitant to say that because I know we've got a few more to cover before we, we sort of get to the end of her run. But I just love the relationship between Perry and Aramem here. There's such a, such a note of truth to the way that they interact together. And, you know, they are definitely stuck in a Shakespearean comedy. You know, they're being dressed up as boys. We get a few boob jokes as well, you know, like Perry having to strap down her boobs just so that she can uh, pass off as this boy. Um, it manages to be body, but it never kind of crosses the line. It's very kind of... Um, I suppose carry on a bit in places you know we get jokes about Perry grabbing a man and a bit coming off in her hand and all this kind of stuff and it's genuinely funny but it's just such a it, it shows so much warmth in Perry and I think Nicola Bryant responds so well to the character being used in that way there's no bitterness there's no cynicism she's got this amazing kind of rapport with Caroline Morris that I don't think they've ever come across in any of the plays that we've covered so far. Uh, we've talked about them sort of that kind of sisterly relationship, big sister, little sister relationship. But here we see much more kind of an equal balance between them where, where Perry is wise enough because she comes from the future, but, but Aramem is also wise enough because she comes from the past. And the way that those two things collide is, is just lovely. Like that scene where Aramem is genuinely suggesting that they kill themselves to get out of the situation then laughs off then later on eventually sort of says to the doctor actually I did mean it but I lied because I saw the effect that it had on Perry that's such a, a great moment for Aramem but it's struck there's something so strikingly true to Aramem's character and also to Perry's you know Perry does come from a slightly blinkered slightly privileged background so the idea that she doesn't fully understand this time. She neither understands this time nor completely understands Aramem's relationship uh, to, to death. Those are great character beats for her because they seem consistent and yet she's able to be light and funny. You know, when they're playing tennis and, and, and uh, Aramem complains about having the sun in her eyes and Perry makes a joke about, well, you're always telling me about people worshipping the sun. I'm sure you can just say a prayer and a cloud will appear. It's funny and it feels... It, I, I just... I. 
ache for the for Perry to have been written that way on on TV because it's such a Nicola Bright's a great comic actor, which is not something she gets a lot of credit for, but she's great at all that kind of stuff. And I just the relationship between her and Aramem, I think this is probably yeah I I'll, I'll yeah just just say it straight off. I think this is the strongest it's ever been written, and I'm probably going to say it's the strongest that ever will be written. I love both of them in this play. I mean, I'm looking at a list of Aramem stories right now, and it is sort of surprising but we've talked about this before i think how airman stories almost all of them are either frustrating or disappointing or misfires in some way and even like the good ones like have parts that sort of let you down even you know the character of airman is interesting in them this is easily like the only airman story that really like knocks it out of the park in like every aspect and especially in the writing of airman and i think it really reckons with how her point of view is so different from the Doctors and Perrys, how she has such a, a straightforward view of murder, how she is willing to die if the situation like is that dire. And she has that great moment with the Doctor at the end where she talks about how, uh, indirectly talks about how she sort of put this plan of like suicide to Perry and then tried to play it off as a joke. And I think that's such a great bit of acting from Carolyn Morris, both in that moment and in the discussion afterwards with the Doctor. It's such a good, where you can definitely see all the emotions that character is going through just with dialogue that's not directly saying those emotions. Well, absolutely. And I think the the strength of Caroline Morris's performance is greatly enhanced by a script which actually gives her that sort of intelligence. I mean, yeah, we've had good scripts from Aramem before, but I don't think we've quite ever had one that's managed to sort of nail all the different aspects of it. And I really like the fact that her historical perspective isn't sort of... Um, underprivileged against the doctors who obviously has more experience than everybody put together or perry because she comes from from our time it's just such a it's such a relief to have the character be kind of vindicated and and um you know not in a sort of patronizing or or kind of well done you've you've kind of done your thing too um you know, we had some aspects of that, for example, when we were covering um, Council of Nicaea. And, and that, the, I mean, the character was well used there, but there was a slight sense, I think, that... And not that the character wasn't used, but it, it, it felt a little mechanical, I suppose. Maybe that's how I want to say it. Um, it's not that it's badly done. Um, and certainly in Council of Nicaea, you know, RMM has you know, a genuine perspective on a period of time which is much closer to her own. But here there's something very organic, there's something very natural about the way that Aramem is written. And I think Caroline Morris's performance sort of really reflects that. I have absolutely nothing but the highest praise for, for Caroline Morris in this story. I, I think it's her best performance in the role so far by, by some distance. And that's not to insult her previous performances, which have been great. But it's just, I think, because there's, uh, again, that degree of complexity. And I think complexity is the key to all of the characters that we have here. Um, even sort of comparatively sort of small characters like nieces, they're, they're still given like warmth and wit and, and, and sort of smarts. And everybody responds to that. I, I just adore Aramem in the story. I'm absolutely with you there. Uh, I also want to circle back talking about like Perry being a funny part in this story. And yet she is, it really is great to have Nicola Bryant use her comedic chops like this. I used to cite one of your favorites. I don't just want to cite one of mine, which is also sort of a Doctor Who meta joke as well, where she can't say the word die or body or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And just sort of takes her task for like, why did you say like the body was here? Like, I didn't want to say the word. That's <laughs> <laughs> again, then bringing up like that culture clash between the two of them. It's very funny stuff. Well, absolutely. And when you compare it to Drek, like sort of uh, Necromancia, and you just, you feel the waste of the character in, in so many plays that have just been kind of substandard for Aramem, because this is such a, such a clear demonstration of how great she can be. And again, this, it just, it covers like all the characters. I, I, I just, <laughs> I don't know. I'm starting to gush slightly now. <laughs> that wasn't really my intention when we started this. But like so much of the the quality and the detail which uh, exists within the Kingmaker, just it, it makes it very difficult to sort of not talk about with a big smile on your face. And 
that's such a that's such a pleasure it's 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 just great and you know when we have like even john culture we have to talk about the fourth doctor impression. oh yes we have got to talk about that how did you find it i'm really really curious about this because i have i have a, a thing i can say after i've asked you but uh, i'm really curious about how you how you felt about the the impersonation of the fourth doctor i mean it'll do it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's a good impersonation like as I mean, he's famous for it, so I'd hope so. And I definitely think, I mean, given the story is already playing fast and loose with Doctor Who as a whole, I think it fits the story to have this be the way they sort of work in that famous uh, impersonation. A bit of shades of the uh, the five-ish Doctors, which is something I adore, that also use John Coleshaw in the same way to sort of impersonate Tom Baker. It's very, it's very fun. It's cute, and I. Uh, I think it serves its purpose well. Oh, I mean, I completely agree. I, I really like the impression here. And because John Kosher was known for so long for doing sort of Tom Baker impressions, it, it's sort of a joy to hear it here. But also he and Nev Fountain used to work together uh, oh. on a radio series called uh, Dead Ringers, which was a, a sort of a spoof show where they did impressions. Um, they, they did it on the radio for many, many years on, on BBC Radio 4. And BBC Radio 4 is one of the great achievements of Western civilization. Um, it, it was it was great. And they sort of did it, I, I think, sort of early 2000s or something like that. But so so they've worked together. They know each other. And um, John Koshaw used to be famous for doing his sort of Tom Baker impression on that radio show to the extent where at one point he phoned up Sylvester McCoy doing his Tom Baker impression as a sort of prank call. And Sylvester McCoy's eventual end reaction to it was, Tom, are you drunk again? Has is he just as <laughs> he's just sort of constantly prodded him further and further and further? It was it was very very funny, and that's kind of what John Kosher was uh, known for in terms of his Tom Baker impression. But yeah, him and him and Nev Fountain worked on Dead Ringers as well, so they were both huge Doctor Who fans, big kind of Doctor Who nerds, and so having that connection and having them both together on on this play for for those of us who are very old and have long memories back to that show it's just it's blissful yeah obviously i know all this only secondhand just from being a doctor who fan and to sort of that's how i know the name is oh he did the impression of the fourth doctor but yeah. it is really great just to have i don't know that, that sort of sense of history that sort of sense of play and fun and like it still works even as like someone who doesn't know all of that it works well if you have me and have the Irish of extra in joke being played and i'm glad it works so well if you like have the history with it the impersonation it's just that sort of fan service that really does that can function on its own and works well with the story instead of just being obnoxious which is great well i think it's such a rare thing so much kind of fan service is is just box ticking it is just that kind of sense of well if i throw in a reference to this or if i throw in a reference to that then you know that'll get somebody going ta-da and and you know we'll we'll land our moment and there are a couple of times it kind of walks up to that line but mostly this play sort of manages to avoid falling into those pit traps and like the the doctor who discovers historical mysteries or doctor who discovers you know um dinosaurs or whatever all that stuff it, it could be so cheesy and hackneyed but this just it's it's done with such a sort of joie de vivre about it that it, it just it, it can't help but make you kind of smile and and sort of laugh along with it of course it's ridiculous of course it's daft it's meant to be but because there's enough sort of dramatic heft to the rest of the play it's able to get away with moments of kind of like silly tom baker impressions because you know Back then, back in 2006, there was exactly zero chance of Tom Baker ever actually turning up. So, sure, why not? Let's get let's get a funny guy to do, you know, pretty spot-on impression of him. And and you know, we can kind of have at least a little flavor of the fourth doctor in the in the big finish range. Yeah, why not do that? Yeah, indeed. I I completely agree. Why not? And and yet it works. Uh, but it's not diminished in any way by the fact that Tom Baker now does sort of big finish audios it, it, it just it works as a funny bit even if tom baker had recorded those bits himself i don't think it would in any way alter kind of the humor or the the sort of the sort of witticism of of the way that those scenes are written it, it's just really good absolutely uh we're running a little long so i want to just sort of move on to the next topic which i definitely want to talk about clary again i want to talk about him earlier and 
Uh, yeah, he's such a fun character, as well as Susan and Judith, the sort of the nieces in the tower, I guess we could call them. They're so much fun. They get so many fun lines. And you're right, Claire's another example of this character who, on the surface, just seems like almost a one-scene kind of thing. This drunk person who owns the bar the doctor talks to and then is used for like sort of the letter exchange. But then there's he just keeps going with the character and establishing more and more about him. And it really is a, just a great example of uh, how the story utilizes these characters so well. Well, it is. And again, I, I just want to sort of praise Arthur Smith's performance as Clarence because he comes across as somebody who has been cast, I guess, as, as doing that sort of you know, cockerny loudmouth thing and, and, you know, the whole sort of running gags about sort of ceremonial plates and how dirty the floor is and all the rest of it. I mean, it's all funny. And Arthur Smith lands it very well. Arthur Smith is, is, is a comedian, so one would hope that, that he would. But it does, it does allow the character eventually to have that extra space and, and the... I don't want to describe it as a tragedy exactly for Clarence because he's kind of got away with a lot, all things considered. But yeah, he doesn't quite deserve the ending he gets either. Um, I don't know. It's it's just it's just a lovely little character, and I, I suppose probably not a character who's very well uh, remembered in Big Finish history or Doctor Who history. But I think he is one of those kind of secondary characters that really uh, deserves that kind of extra extra attention because it's a lovely role it's incredibly well written i love arthur smith's performance and and yeah there's this this like real compassion that lies behind his existence and it's just it's a lovely little addition this play didn't have to have a character like clarence in it and the way that he does it there's also really oh sorry i'm gonna i'm rambling again and i'm going to slightly off topic but um there's a lot of war, war, you West Country accents in this play, which is firstly great because I love a West Country accent. I genuinely adore that accent. It also slightly hints towards a, a, a BBC uh, radio soap opera called The Archers, which is, is set in the, the West Country of uh, fictional West, of, uh, West Country uh, area called Borsetshire, um, where everybody speaks with war kind of accents. Um, and so the fact there is a character in it called Clary, who does, she, it's a female character, but she does have that kind of same broad accent. And there's, there's lots of little bits that just kind of join up and give so much detail if you kind of know about them, but which don't get in the way if you don't. I'm sure you have no idea what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the archers, but it's just, it's a, it's a glorious thing to have uh, a piece of writing and to have a character like that that can have so many boxes ticked and still actually function as a character and not just kind of like a device. I have heard of the archers, which means I know more about it than 99% of America. 99.99% <laughs> of America, I would have. Yes, probably. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, everything you said is true. It, again, is another great example of this character coming off as a sort of one note character at the beginning and then really being just developed, but never really losing that one note. It's not a surprise, it's not a twist. He's the same person but just further developed and just more layers are revealed to him and this more tragedy is revealed to him. And it's really fun and interesting and engaging. It just makes it such a great story. And like all the characters managed to do that. Like even we haven't really talked about Buckle that much, um, but you know, he's, he's another great character. He acts as a foil to Richard or at the very least a kind of devil stroke angel on his shoulder. But you know, it, it, it's like, it's not a massive part, but, but Mark, uh, Marcus Hutton does really well with that role. Yeah. Arthur Smith doesn't have a big role as Clary, but he certainly has, um, a massive impact in the way that things go. And it's just every single character does that. I mean, even like the the serving wenches, like the fact that that becomes kind of a running joke and yet never tips over into kind of cliche or or sort of, you know, slightly patronizing or sexist attitudes. It's just like, it's just funny. And that's such a, a delicate line to walk. And especially when we have, you know, you know like jokes about how big 
you know, Perry's boobs are or whatever. It could so easily, so many of those sort of things could just collapse into sort of real kind of uncomfortableness, but it, it never does. All characters are given agency. All characters are given dimension. And so, yeah, even with a character like Clary, who doesn't have an awful lot of sort of uh, actual kind of airtime we still get more than enough about that character and that character is sort of also real lust for life as well like as somebody who has never yet recorded an episode of this podcast without a glass of wine in his hand i'm very happy to have drunken characters like this around the place makes me feel vindicated you know but it's a it's just such a such a lovely little character just such a great sort of performance and just this, there's an honesty about the character, and I think that's true of every single performance we get here. There's, there's a, an honesty about them, and they just all shine. Uh, you mentioned sort of the bodiness of the humor in this story. I feel like I have to like publicly eat crow a little bit because <laughs> last week in our other live discussion, I said, "Oh, sexual assault." That's something Doctor Who can never cover and get away with. Well, here we have someone grabbing Aramem's behind and her breaking arms, and yeah, I'm fine with the arms are being broken. I guess that is a way you can get away with it if people are <laughs> being maimed over it. And yeah, there is... Well, and it gives Aramem her agency. That's the thing. It's like, yeah, of course she's um, slightly overreacting and it's being slightly over-exaggerated so for comic effect. But, you know, the fact that um, she uh, she breaks his arm and he ends up being called One-Armed Clary. That, that's just funny. And it's a genuine sort of situation. And it lets... Uh, Aramem retain her agency it's like three things in one kind of very minor sort of throwaway kind of line and it happens a couple of times during the play that's great how fantastic is that that's just not something that every writer can pull off and I guess specifically why Nefatin pulls this off and uh, whoever wrote Other Lives and or to keep it in Aramem whoever wrote Necromantia uh, doesn't is because you're right, it gives her her agency. It is, and it's kept with a lightness to it. It's not just uncomfortable. And that, I think, it, and yeah, I think it gives you that comfort back because of her keeping her agency and because of it functioning as part of the story instead of just a bit of extra nastiness to throw in there. And I think that is sort of where you have to sort of play these sort of cards very intelligently. And this story does play that very intelligently. Well, I couldn't agree more. And although I know we're running long here, but I have to ask you one more question because I'm really dying to know what your answer to this is. But um, how did you find the twist with Richard becoming Shakespeare and Shakespeare becoming Richard? Because I think this is one of those things that could be handled sort of really clumsily. And we've sort of slightly talked about it before, but I kind of really want to get into the details of it. Did you think it works in terms of the, the sort of narrative of the play? Yeah, I think it really works for this story. And... I think it really works. Just this general air of the story thro throwing continuity out the window, throwing the logic of the universe out the window, and just telling something in and of itself, the story of uh, trying to square history that's run amok, in a sense. And it also, I think, is a satisfying conclusion to both those characters, where, I mean, as ahistorical, anachronistic as it is, I, mean, I would not believe the real William Shakespeare acts anything like the William Shakespeare of the story, but we have William Shakespeare's story. It is such a fitting end for him to be sort of uh, thrown into a battle and murdered like this. It just works so well for uh, just a comic character to get like him to get sort of a comic end. And at the same time for Richard III to sort of get out of it and really have a chance to reprove himself. It really satisfies from a character arc perspective. Yeah, I, th I think that's exactly it. I think it becomes very satisfying from from that that angle and i really really like it i can imagine that there are people who may sort of question it shall we say um, but i think it works so well again it kind of alludes to a lot of those sort of shakespearean reversals right at the end but it, it's just it feels so honest to the characters and i think it's really important that 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 honesty is is carried right the way through. There is obviously a certain satisfaction because the Shakespeare is is a bit of an ass, 
Um, and, you know, he becomes, uh, I'm very sorry, but he becomes hoist on his own petard. And that's fantastic. You know, he arrogantly thinks that he can get away with things. He, he believes that he can, um, you know, threaten the doctor with what turns out to be a toothbrush. You know, all these kind of things. They're, they're funny and incidental details, but they remain true to the character of Shakespeare as he's established in this play. And, and so I, I, I just, I really really like that reversal I'm, I'm extremely fond of of that ending and I'm, I'm happy that kind of Richard is given the chance for his redemption it's not something which is obvious and again as we sort of mentioned before you know he has done terrible things he is somebody who's prepared to torture prepared to murder but only by his own morality only when it's something he deems absolutely necessary he does not take life when he doesn't think it's required he will only do it out of of that sort of obligation and that gives him his own moral perspective which is seen obviously as being distinct from the doctors and perry's it's also slightly distinct from erimem's as well and so that ending where he actually gets the chance for for redemption where he gets the chance to be able to develop his own sense of morality and his own outlook on life it feels earned and i really I think that's such a such an elegant way of handling that character in what is again you know a funny silly Shakespearean reversal having all those things come together in that ending it's just there's so much symmetry to it it's handled so well and I, I just have absolutely nothing but admiration for it oh absolutely and yeah I love the symmetry and I love like just how it works well for the characters and then I also I'm just sort of fascinated by this argument the story is making about the Doctor, and the one that Richard is making all throughout the story. Almost his mission in the story is to try to provoke the Doctor into choosing whether he prioritizes the flow of history or the lives of the people around him. And it's something that Doctor Who always half-heartedly wrestles with, and this story has to half-heartedly wrestle with it too. But Well, I mean, half-heartedly is a bad way of putting it for this story specifically, but what I mean is that uh, like it can never really have a good answer to that dilemma of whether Doctor would choose history or people's lives. Because just by nature of Doctor Who being Doctor Who, A, the Doctor has to set things right. Otherwise, like we, I mean, it, the story would never end. Like this is the most chaotic in terms of changing history Doctor Who story would ever get outside of something truly um, out of canon. And this is also, at the same time, the doctor has to sort of stay the doctor. Like he can't murder people directly. They can't uh, leave people behind to be murdered indirectly, except in very extreme circumstances. And sort of question sort of contradiction of what if these two ideals come into conflict is very fascinating. And like, it has this very bitter ending for Richard where still everything works out fine for the doctor because it has to, because we can't have a show with a murderer. And we also can't have a show where suddenly um, Richard III's family is sort of reigning England for decades and decades. Well, no, I completely agree with all of that. And the the way that we have that discussion going on within the play is is sort of it's sort of redolent of of, of I think everything we've sort of been talking about over the last hour and and change. The intelligence of the way that the play is able to address those issues, I think, and so many others as well that we've discussed is is one of the reasons that this is one of the most sort of fascinating plays I think that we've really covered. I'm sort of zooming out slightly now, but um, it's so rare to have, I don't just mean in big finish, but in general, um, something which can be appreciated in so many different um, elements and, and in different levels. And the way that this play is able to land its humor and its kind of historical perspective, its characters, its sort of philosophy, its morality, and for that never to feel overburdensome. And again, sort of just to reiterate, but you know, this is a complicated play. There are multiple time zones, there are multiple different approaches, there are characters who are sort of, you know, interacting in, in different time zones. It's, 
it's cut and edited unbelievably well. There's, it's it's a, a vast amount going on in this play. The fact that it's all handled with this degree of elegance and with this degree of skill, it's a testament to absolutely everybody involved. Again, you know, we don't normally talk about production, but I'm going to have to praise um, Nicholas Briggs for the direction in this. I think he does an amazing job. Um, absolutely, all of the cast members are stunning. Of course, the, the big plaudits go to Neff Fountain. It's just, this is just one of the best plays I think that we've covered in a very, very long time. Cannot think of a better way to sum it all up. Uh, yeah, Thank you all for listening. Uh, we don't have any letters to talk about this week, but you can email us at TalkingWhoToYou at gmail.com with questions about the episode you just listened to, questions about Doctor Who in general, recommendations for other stories to cover, specifically looking for still looking. <laughs> no one has shown up with fourth Doctor adventures they want us to talk about, which I maybe should start taking as a sign. <laughs> um, and then also, as mentioned last week, we're looking for recommendations if you guys want us to talk about anything non-Doctor Who specific, but maybe Doctor Who adjacent related. Like any topics in film or TV or anything, just give us a shout and maybe we'll discuss the end of an episode and maybe devote a whole episode to it if it interests us enough. Uh, for sure, looking for, to branch out of content a little bit. Uh, find us on Twitter at Talking Who to You. You can find me on Twitter at Kev Kozer. That is K E V K O E S E R. You can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott. That is J G M C Q U A R R I E. Scott. Like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and our podcatcher you're using to help other people find it. Fantastic. Thanks very much. And thanks everyone that's listening. I know we've gone a little bit longer than we normally do this week, uh, but I think this is probably one of the plays that absolutely justifies the extra length. So we hope you've enjoyed that as well. Next week, we are going to be returning after quite a long pause to the world of the Fourth Doctor, which means we are going to be visiting suburban hell and the cloisters of terror. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.